really excited to talk to Josh Cowan today uh, of Michigan State University and also an education policy center no known as REACH. Um, I don't know, you probably don't follow too much of what's happening in Missouri, but basically to just give you uh, a little bit of lay of the land, in Missouri, we generally don't have any choice for where parents send their kids to school. We have charter schools just in Kansas City and St. Louis, one opening near St. Louis, but the whole rest of the state essentially has none. We have a very small scholarship program that three or 4,000 kids can participate in, but we've got 850,000 public school students. So about you know 99% of them don't have any options at all other than maybe a full-time virtual. But I do think that the legislature is going to get, I hope, serious this year about letting kids go to school in a different district than the one they live in. And we're limited program for that now. But as it comes up, and even as I'm talking to people who support this policy, they're like, what will we do about the buses? You know, it always seems to be this sticking point of like, how can we get all the kids to the places where their parents want them to be? And, you know, I've kind of got my stock answers on that. But recently, you and your colleague, Daniel Edwards, put out this really interesting study to me, because to me, your study, which is around people who use these programs, school choice programs, and whether or not they move over this long period of time. And I want you to explain all the findings, but to me, this is almost like, because these programs have been in place for a while, now people like you can do these studies, which is to say, 10 years down the road, if Missouri has this policy, what's it gonna look like? Are people gonna move around? Are people going to pick a school in a different district and just fight the transportation problem that creates? Or, or what's going to happen? And you have the answers. So please, if you could just give me a quick synopsis of what you guys found in your latest study. Yeah, thanks, Susan. Well, first, it's good to be here and good to chat about all this stuff with you. I, um, I, you know, I, I appreciate that setup for a couple of reasons. One, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's some of those particular practical problems around transportation and choice are, are some, uh, some of the, the, what we would call kind of the next generation of school choice research questions. It's one of the reasons that REACH Center you described is even organized. So little background on that center. It's a national research center um, based in Tulane, where New Orleans, um, in New Orleans at Tulane University, where, as, as I think a lot of folks know, Hurricane Katrina changed the school system. So it's now basically a big charter school environment. It also has vouchers and um, and a small number of just regular public schools that parents can transfer to. And it's funded by the U.S. federal government. It's a five-year research and development center um, with sites all over the country. So I run the Michigan uh, site, which is the second biggest site for school choice research in that center. Um, and explicitly, the funding stream from the U.S. Department of Ed, uh, it is explicitly not a, a, a research center on questions like, do charter schools outperform public schools, or do vouchers outperform charters, or it's not an evaluation center, it's a research and development center to ask these sort of, again, what we call second generation questions. So like transportation, rules of enrollment. Um, how much oversight is going to be like the kinds of programs that the kinds of questions that are kind of baked into this idea that choice is here. It's it's going to it's part of a steady state. I am a, a critic of a number of areas of choice, in, but I, I also um, understand that it's here and want to kind of make these systems better. So this is a research project that like is taking on the ground. Michigan has had uh, interdistrict choice for 
almost 30 years and charter schools for almost 30 years since 1994. And um, it's a very elaborate, extensive uh, on the ground system. About one out of every four kids in Michigan go to a, a public school that is not their residential school. Uh, and that number, that one in four is about equally divided between charter schools, which of course are public schools and non-resident districts. And what we mean by that is just you live in one district, but you go to school in the next door district. We, we, we don't have a system that allows kids to travel like to three districts down the road. But as long as you're in, um, as long as your district sort of is in the same larger county-based district or next door, you can, you can transfer. And then the districts, the money follows the kid and the districts kind of, um, the state law allows that to happen. And there are some exceptions to that. Like, um, um, it's a little more complicated since our, our funding stream for special needs comes through our intermediate county-based districts. Uh, there's some, some smaller details about how the special needs funding works there, but for the most part, you can go if the, um, next door, if the district has room for you and that sort of thing. So what we did in this study, and this is, this is, as you as you said, this is what, um, state level rich administrative data allow researchers to do we know where these children live as well um not just where they go to school we know down to their census block which is a, 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 it's like it says it's it's it's, a, it's about a block about a neighborhood block um so we know that the kids where they live and we can see if they move residences in a given period of time within a given year um and there's only been another, a couple of other reports or studies that have actually tried to look at the way that school choice and residential decisions interact with each other. I mean, in, in, in sort of the politics world, you hear things like on both sides, right? Like, well, a kid's, you know, school shouldn't be determined by what zip code they live in and what, you know, and, you know, that's all fine. But uh, what does that actually mean? When we're talking about kind of actionable policy questions and decisions and, um, we're one of the first studies to actually just try to unpack that. And what we what we find here is not surprisingly, like when you've got a system that's almost 30 years old, it's really baked into almost two generations of parental decision making, right? Like um, in terms of like how parents are thinking about the relationship between where they buy their homes or where they rent their ho their apartments or their homes, where they're going to send their kids to school. And we see things that you would expect to see when those things interplay a lot more than they would if you're just now bringing a school choice system into play. So a few things. So we see that generally speaking, charter school kids and kids that are transferring between districts um, uh, are just more mobile uh, residentially too. So so they, they're more likely to just move in general than kids who are just fixed in their in their and go to school in the district where they live. Why do you think that is? Um, I think they're just, I think what we see is a lot of, um, I, th I think we see, well, let me get to the next finding because I think it's part, partly reason, um, the reason. So we also see that residentially mobile kids are more likely to actually even exit formal school choice than those who don't change districts. So residentially more mobile kids are also more mobile in and out of school choice programs. And the, the link there is that, we think that this is parents are making some of their residential and school decisions based on what what's going on with the other. In other words, I um, 
maybe I want to buy a home in like, so we have a lot of communities here um, that are kind of hip places to live for young people, right? Like you get a townhouse in, um, in an old, in old town and Lance, it's kind of a hip place to live. Maybe you, you want to send, you're not, you're, you're, you're just newly married and you don't have children yet. You have this townhouse, you do have a child. Eventually you want to send that child to an, a, a suburban school, um, but you're not quite ready to sound, sell your hip townhouse yet. And uh, so you so you use school of choice. It's called school of choice, this non-resident district. So you school of choice your kid into the neighboring district, but you stay in Lansing for a while. And then eventually you have another kid and, and eh, you know, that drive out to the suburbs is getting a little tedious. I'm going to, I'm going to trade, trade my, my sports car for a minivan. I'm going to sell out and go from my, from my it's over for me. It's over. I'm going to go live in the suburbs, right? But but I'm making a little bit of, of uh, you know, I'm speaking a little facetiously, but it actually is consistent with these data, right? So because what ends up happening then, the third finding is we see a, half of the kids that leave school choice programs in, in Michigan do so because they're just moving into the district that they were use that they were using school choice programs to attend in the first place and that that's i think the most interesting which is yep. to me it's sort of like they tried it out yeah. like before they sold their house and moved yep. they're like i'm gonna try out this school district and then it sounds like for a, a, a bunch of them they decided they liked it enough to want to live close enough to not have to deal with the transportation or, problem or yeah i think that's that's one or they um liked where they lived but didn't like the schools there yeah and eventually just decided i mean i i i'm again i'm speaking a little facetiously but i can count on on i i know a number of young families uh my kids are older but i know a number of young families who have still not gotten rid of the house they bought as a starter home when they first got married in kind of a cool it's near the bars it's near our minor league baseball stadium some good restaurants it's kind of cool but eventually you got soccer practice at 8 a.m. on Saturdays. Sure. You got to get, you know, that your kids' suburb. friends live out there. You know, your kids friends live out there. You don't want to keep your, you feel bad that your kid has to drive instead of walk to play with their friends. Right. So you move, you move to, and, and also your income goes up. So, you know, you don't have that yep, tiny yep. little place anymore. You you're now seven, eight years in, you've got two children and you go buy the three or four bedroom house in the suburbs. So you, but you don't want to, you don't, you, you don't need to use school of choice anymore because you've just moved to that district. So I think it's it's an interplay. And I think what that's telling me more generally is parents in a mature, what we have this kind of phrase in, in the school choice research community called like a mature choice system, parents in a choice system, they're, they're, they're making what we call whole, whole the life decisions, meaning, you know, for a lot of the rhetoric that lo- those of us in the school choice world kind of get to about like what do parents make decisions on, you know, yeah. cards, school report cards and culture wars and all this, like actually what a lot of this is going on is like parents are making decisions partly based on where they live and what, you know, things like commute time. I mean, this is the other finding we have is, um, is uh, the further a parent has to commute to take their kid to to one of these schools of choice, the the bigger the likelihood the parent leaves the school choice system eventually anyway, right? Like sure. these things matter a lot. And um, when we see in New Orleans, for example, this study is in Michigan, but we see I've worked in New Orleans. We look at just how parents rank schools 
on the applications we can see, well, academics is always the number one thing that we see. But number two, and it's a close second, is distance. And, you know, so I I guess it's, this is one of those things where like the findings are kind of intuitive and we've had to work hard to explain why they're novel because I think a lot of people outside of the research community kind of get this. They're like, well, duh, of course parents want to go to school near where they live, near where they live. But it takes a second to, to to actually see that that's not necessarily a given when it's borne out in the data. And it's, it's also just not as like, you know, it's it's not as front page as kind of, you know, uh, uh, some of the culture war stuff and stuff like that. But I firmly believe that when you're talking about these public choice systems, you know, you got a lot of rational decision making that parents are just making based on where they live and, and how that makes sense to the other decisions they make in life, like whether where we're going to buy our homes and things yeah. like that. Or where I'm going to work. I mean, just well, like yeah, you said, mm-hmm. I think that uh, I have been doing this for a long, long time, 20, 25 years, school choice or education reform research. And, you know, I, when you have these competing factions of like, number one, it's going to blow up the public school system and privatize everything. And that's not going to happen. And number two, that it's going to fix everything. And that's not going to really happen. Or everyone in a poor schools is going to automatically transfer to a wealthy school. We haven't seen that happen. So what I think we've seen is exactly what your research finds, which I think is so cool about it is like, it's just individual people making the right decisions for their family at that point in time. And it could be a different decision. If you have three kids, it could be a different decision for each of your three kids. Arizona's had a very open system for a long time. And I have a friend who raised her kids in Tucson. She's four of them and they're all in or out of college. So this is a long time ago, but she was like, you know, I don't know. I might do the Montessori charter for my oldest one, but I might not do it for my, like yeah. it was baked in where she knew when her kids hit about five, she needed to start making, doing some research and figuring out what would be the best thing. And I think another artifact of the Arizona system that I've heard that people don't really talk about is um, sort of the intense parents moving their kids around too much. Cause they're like, wow, yeah. College prep opened, bases opened. I better switch my kid over there, or I better get them in language immersion, or I better not have them in language. Like parents doing this really active switching, which is which is a negative. But I just think that what you see in the media and what the legislators talk about, what's going to happen, and the teachers talk about, teachers unions talk about what's going to happen. None of that happens. You have parents making decisions. And they try out of school of choice and maybe they move into that district, which makes a ton of sense to me. Or maybe they just get burned out on the driving. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's what I love about this is that Michigan's had the systems for so long that we can kind of see like it doesn't destroy public education. It doesn't do these horrible things. Would you say? I, you know, I to a point, I think there are winners and losers. I I mean, I'm I am. um I, there are winners and losers for districts in in this system we have here because the dollars do follow the kids. So yeah. it, it does your 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 district share. We have a very complex funding formula here, which you have to have if the dollars follow the kids. But basically, in a nutshell, if your kid leaves District A for District B, District A has to recover a greater share of its of the local share that districts have to contribute to education the kids that do stay come from the district so they do lose some money um i don't think that that destroys public education the way some folks do and i would you know we're not talking about uh, vouchers here i've been a very public critic of vouchers that's a different story sure. um but i do think 
you know, we have to recognize in the school choice research community and the policymaking community that um, these programs do provide some um, meaningful uh, contribution to kind of the decisions parents have to make. And I'm on board with that. I think a couple of things that concern me about Michigan system in particular is that we have um, there are areas of of potential inequity that we are a very local control state. So we have more than 500 districts, which is a lot. <laughs> we do as well. Um, and 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 um, in the way our school of choice, again, that's the name for our inner district uh, choice system. The way our school of choice system works, the state has certain parameters, like you can't discriminate based on federal discriminate right? Um, but there are things the districts can do, like um, districts can set their own enrollment deadlines for non-resident kids. They can decide whether they provide transportation or not. That's a big thing. Uh, about half do. About half will send their buses into another district and half don't. Um, and they have to make districts actually don't. In Michigan, districts are not on the hook to require transportation at all. But if they do, they have to do it for everyone in their yeah. resident district. And almost everybody does, you know. But so we just have a very much here. It's a, it, they're, they're like grants. It's like, here's your money. You guys can do what you want with it. But if you do enter this game, you have to have non-discriminatory, right? That kind of thing. I would like to see some more centralized um, state oversight on things like the admissions deadlines, for example. So we know in some of the related work to this, for example, that districts that are closest, white suburban districts, heavily majority white suburban districts that are closest to high poverty uh, districts with high rates of students of color, they tend to have very, very early deadlines in the school year for admission to the neck to the neighboring district. And I'm talking like February of the school year before. Yeah. And you know, we know that, right? And then that it, it, whereas a district that's got low poverty, uh, high poverty and high rates of students of color, you can enroll in that district from outside the district up to the first day of classes. Um, so we know that, you know, who are the moms and dads who are not, you know, kind of with it enough nine months ahead to think I run, a, I want to use school of choice to apply to another non-resident district, right? There's a way that they can cream students out, right? And I would rather not see that kind of decision-making. Um, there's a study by the Fordham Institute. I know the authors who, who looked at something similar like this in Ohio, and they're, they're, where districts don't have to participate in school in the interdistrict enrollment. And basically the closer you are to heavily urban areas like Cleveland or Akron or, or Columbus, the less likely the district is to even take kids from out of district. So there are, I, I guess the only, the, the, it's not really a comment about like destroying public schools, but it is a comment about when you need it, when you think about how these districts can make the decisions, I do worry there is that tension between balancing local needs and then also um, thinking about, you know, in Michigan, we there's there is incentive for a money grab for 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 districts who can if they can kind of figure out a way to get some of the better performing kids from an accountability standpoint, then it's worth the extra dollars they bring in. But for some districts, there is that attention between beefing up your enrollment and actually pushing your accountability scores down, depending sure. on what you're taking from the. So those are kind of I don't want to say they're small details because they're important, but I do think we need to we need more. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that our 
reach the school choice research centers looking at oversight too. I think those things need to be part of this conversation, but they also, they, they go hand in hand with this larger sense that parents make these decisions. And one last thing I want to say before I shut up is you mentioned employment. This is one thing that this study, and I don't know a single uh, academic report that can look, that has been able to look at this, but we know anecdotally from press reporting here, that families do use our interdistrict enrollment system and our, our school of choice system specifically for young kids to enroll them in districts near where they work. Sure. That makes a ton of sense, right? Like I think the narrative a lot in both, both sides of the school of choice debate, a lot of it's about like keeping money in public schools or putting school, putting your kid in a school that fits your values or all this, you know, and I think there's some of that, but for most parents, like most parents are thinking they're again, thinking really rationally, right? Like, yeah. um, like we, I've read in these, you know, really good uh, news articles about like parents, we've got a lot of seasonal employment up in the Northern part of Michigan and rural districts, like a lot of, you look at the map, we have a lot of fishing, a lot of tourism, a lot of, and so these jobs are seasonal and some parents have to transfer between county, move between counties to get seasonal employment. And so what they'll do is they'll put their kids in the district near where they work. And that way, if like their five-year-old or six-year-old has a fever and gets sent home, they don't got to drive 30 miles, right? right? That's really important to young parents, right? And so I think can given a baseline of just like basic quality of the school, parents tend to make a lot of decisions based on like after school care access where how quick can i get to the school if my kid's sick right and so i wish that the one thing that i wish we could have done in this study is look at where the parents work and it's just impossible because the school records don't are not matched to employment records but if we could i suspect we'd see a lot of that too right is this right. it's almost this interplay between where you live where you work and where you decide to send your kids i think all of that needs to be built into the school choice conversations yeah. Um, and that's what's exciting. Hopefully we'll be able to do that moving forward. I, I've just always said, like, I don't ever want to get involved in why parents choose because, you know, parents choose pediatricians and I might have chosen a pediatrician for my kids because I never had to wait or I liked the waiting room. The kids, were, the sick kids were kept separate, whatever it is. I don't want people judging my reasons for picking that doctor. And I don't really judge people's reasons for picking schools because I think like you said they're rational and they make sense to that family and it's not really my place you know people are like well would you let a parents choose x I'm like probably I mean if you let parents make the decisions in my opinion then in in the bigger picture you're going to get the best distribution or best match of kids to schools and that's a big thing to be far away i yeah, I worked very far from my kid's school and it was very stressful during the day if something happened to try to, you know, I was out and way out in Northern Virginia and I worked down in DC and it was very hard to, oh, sure. to make a switch during the day. And uh, it's a very stressful feeling as a parent. Yeah. yeah. And we're not paying, you know, and again, this study in particular can't pay attention to it, but what I want open these larger conversations up, right? Like, and this is part of it. So it's the other thing we don't pay enough attention to on to all this is just the differences in um, the types of choices parents make depending on the age of their children, right? So like, uh, my kids are all teenagers. And if, you know, there may be some legal reason I have to pick them up from school, but for the most part, I can just I can just, if the school calls and says they want to go home, they can walk back to their mom's house and I'll go get them later or whatever. Obviously that's really different if you've got a five or a six year old. So the idea 
right? Or then even um, athletics, right? Some of these non-academic factors like athletics, like after school care, like arts programs, those are going to matter a lot more for high schoolers than they are at the bottom. Whereas, you know, if you talk to parents of young kids, yes, of course, they want some basic level of quality, but they're also going to be thinking things like, um, like distance, can my kid walk in a safe neighborhood down the street, right? Like you talked to some of these, some of these qualitative studies that are done in these, in these cities, um, that reaches part of and others, like the ability to just walk to school with your kid is a really big deal. And I think we, you know, we, we kind of, uh, you know, we say things and I think a lot of us agree in general that like zip code shouldn't be destiny when it comes to where kids go to school, but we forget that for, for, parents who are able home choice for young families is is also school choice and you know it it it, we would school choice programs are necessary to ensure that parents who don't want that to be true that's right to have access to, to communities that they may not be able to afford to live in but even even parents who um you know all else equal they're still going to pick schools that are as close to them as they possibly can i mean study after study after study that is able to access distance data confirms that and it's common sense i mean no one well, wants to be on that point then let me ask you because this is a very big issue in missouri what about rural families do rural yeah. families in M- michigan use the um school of choice program actually disproportionately so so wow um, so, so I don't have it in front of me, but a kind of a companion, we've done a lot of companion reports and then just side little presentations for our state board of ed. Um, in Michigan, uh, charter schools are the dominant form of urban and suburban school choice and rural and uh, school choice, inter-district enrollment is the dominant form of r- rural school choice. In fact, it's the only form of rural school choice because well, we, well, we don't have very many charter schools in rural communities for one thing, <laughs> but the other is it is also related to the fact that, like I mentioned, we have 500 districts. So you 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 kind of have to know the Michigan geography a little bit to understand this. But I mean, we're not talking about like huge geographic size districts. And so, right. for example, my kids go to school in a, in a little community of about 4,000 people named called Williamson, which is outside the city of Lansing. And there's a, a neighboring community called Perry, which is smaller, but is right next door. You don't really know where Perry begins and Williamston ends if you're just driving. Um, and functionally, like uh, it could take you longer to get to the Williamston High School if you live in the Williamston zone than if you live in Perry just to the north of the high school. So I think uh, th- that's where when you have a when you have a state that has so many tiny, tiny, tiny geographic districts that are autonomous, then you do see a lot of rural transport transport. And then the other, the other, um, because it's not really, it's not that far. Like we're not talking about moving from say Detroit on the far east side of the state to mm-hmm. Grand Rapids on the far west side. I mean, is, a lot it, of this- is it quality? I mean, do you know our rural high schools in Michigan that are part of this program? Are they are they trying to create niche programs? Are they trying to attract? Because that's what there's, I think. There's some happen. of that. There's some of that, but it's less. It's less high school. I think it's some of it is just younger, and some of it's related to that seasonal stuff I mentioned. Some of it's related to sports. Some of it's related to where the parents 
Um, so like a number of parents uh, use school of choice to move their kids in if they teach. So they have to, that's the other thing to keep in mind. So public sector and in particular public schools, but the public sector more generally are the biggest employers in some of these rural communities. Yep. So you're talking about like, say, um, you guys, you get snow in Missouri, but not like us here. So yep. like um, the county highway systems in our rural communities are they work overtime during the winter plowing our state roads. Um, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like using school of choice to move around. Now, I'm not saying that like the majority of rural kids go to school in there, you know, where they don't live. That's, that's not true. But I am saying that as a percentage, almost, it's like in the high thirties of 30% of kids in rural schools in Michigan go to school in a different district than they live. That sounds like a lot and it is, but it's not, um, Again, that's where the geography comes in. Like they're not necessarily traveling forever. We're still talking about 10, 15 minute drive sure. just because yeah. of how tiny our districts are. And there's yeah, I a think lot we're of- in the same boat. Yeah. I mean, we I've been looking at the square miles of our district and we have 520 ish as well. And um, so they're very small and it's not far to go. But some of our districts are so small, fewer than 100 kids that the high schools yeah. just don't really offer calculus and physics. I mean, no AP, no language other than Spanish. They they might have 10 teachers. There's a lot of that, too. And, and then, you know, it is hard to... Um, it, you know, we haven't been able to unpack. So COVID kind of blew up some of this stuff um, just because of, we did have a lot of local control on on which schools opened and closed and which ones went back when. Um, we, But we also knew that most of our rural schools, especially those up north, were kind of, if they weren't in person the whole time, they were in person a lot longer than like our big yeah. urban schools like Detroit and stuff. So it, it, there has been some of this moving around Um just as parents have sorted between these things. But, but, you know, also it's, again, that's where this study, just bringing it back to this study, that's where that yeah. comes in. So like, you know, a lot of these rural communities, there may be some, there's some brand loyalty perhaps to your specific hometown, but like a lot of this is there, people use schools of choice to keep the, to keep their kids in the district when they have to move again. Right. So we're talking about these rural communities, like, you might you might move uh, four miles away and you're in a different district now, but you want your kid to keep going to school and you're willing yeah, to drive four miles, right? So formally, you have to you, you're you're entitled to a spot, but formally, the, the the way that the state accounting works, they mark you up as a school choice kid, so that the dollars are accounted for in in that way, and you're you're formally using school choice to keep your kid in a right. stable. Right. And I think we don't talk enough about that, too. Right. Like how school choice is often used to keep to keep the kid in a school um, that they want to be when the move outside the line. Right. Right. You keep your kids. Some, some states have like hold harmless type things where like if your kids enrolled, you don't have to leave them. You don't have to move them if you move addresses, but some don't. And so we we kind of this is all like up to the local local concerns. But again, I think I think the take home point of this report is residential decisions are directly tied to school decisions and vice versa. Uh, residentially mobile kids are more likely to be mobile between schools, too, which I think is intuitive. Like if yeah. you are well off enough to be able to just to plan ahead and decide I'm going to build buy a home here it's going to be our home for 10 years 
and we're going to do it partly based on the school quality of the schools around us, you're going to be less likely to leave that home and leave that school um, than if you're kind of moving around and shopping around or you're, you're, you know, so that's, that's really important. And then commute time really matters here. Like school choice kids are much less likely to stay school choice kids, the further away they have to go to make that choice. Okay. So, so the, uh, there is some sort of exhaustion factor on having to travel too far. It might sound like a great idea in the beginning to spend 40 minutes every morning getting your child to the school, but eventually uh, it wears off. Right. So you do one of two things. You either move closer to where the kid's going or you just pull the kid out, and put them closer to where you're living. That's interesting. So idea that people will just stay, for example, in the city of St. Louis and send their kids to the suburban schools forever. Not really what you found. What you found is that they'll stay for a little bit. Then eventually there's a likelihood that they will move to the district of choice where they put their kid. Yeah, it's not. They're about half and half. So it's not like it's not like everybody doesn't do that, but about half stay and half go. That's how I would put it. So, so then also 75% of Michigan parents don't move their kid out of their assigned school. Yes, correct. Of the, of even those, after, yes, yeah. Even after 30 years of that being available, even if they grew up in that system, it sounds like a lot of the parents in Michigan now grew up in that system. But they that's still why, yeah, but that's, I think that's partly a distance thing too, right? Like parents, like parents don't want to drive as like we know this in every state that this has been looked at, right, with distance, is that the reason three quarters in Michigan don't use school choice isn't because they're not available. It's not available. It's really available here. It's because they're satisfied with their schools or they live near where they want them to be. Like they don't, yeah. you know, or they don't or it's a lot of work. Right. Like also, like we think about parents, I, I I think both sides of the school choice debate make this mistake of thinking of thinking of parents as these kind of mini entrepreneurs who are Mm -hmm. like plotting out their kids, you know, 12 years of their kids education based on like this perfect set of information about who the kid is and their academic abilities and their needs at five years old, which is crazy. That's not how parents think. That's right. And kids don't start becoming kids. They don't begin their lives at the age of five. They begin their lives at the age of zero and they're building up to it. Right. So thinking about like, you might live in a certain place and have it all in your head that you're going to school a choice into two districts down or whatever it is. But then your kids are in care with people. Your kids have made friends friends at the age of three and four in your neighborhood. Um, you start thinking, you know, I, it's not that bad here. We're, we're, we're in the middle of the state's test score distribution. I, want, I don't want my kid to go to kindergarten with strangers. I want him to go with the kids he's known for the last three years. I want to go work at bake shops with the same moms at the PTA that I was um, in my small, my small child care groups with. Like, that's how I think a lot of this, these parents make these decisions. It's not a mystery. Right. I think that's like, that's one of the take home points of this, even though our report can't speak to all those dynamics, it does speak to this notion that like parents are making school choice decisions while they're also living the rest of their lives. That's right. Those lives lives include where they live, right? That's what I'm trying to get at here. That's right. Um, Do you think that Michigan, Louisiana, I'm trying, I'm struggling with some examples here. Do you think like having these um, mature school choice 
environments has affected Michigan's overall academic achievement? Well, we did do a study on this a few years ago, a graduate student and I, and we, we saw no change once whatsoever. There are some problems with like, it, there's some technical reasons that we probably couldn't confirm like 100% that there was no difference, but we did see that it was sort of settled out. That would be consistent with what you would expect in what economists call a perfect equilibrium scenario, which is basically just after 25 years, people have sort of settled into the environment that that fits them. If that's true, if that theory of equilibrium is true, you wouldn't expect to see differences either for or against. And we don't, I mean, there is no evidence in Michigan that school, that having school choice increases achievement. And there's no evidence in Michigan that having school choice between districts decreases achievement. If there's an effect, it's on something else that we can't measure. Yeah. Maybe it makes it slightly more attractive for families. I mean, so Missouri doesn't have it, which is makes it pretty unattractive for families and our academic achievement just, yes, we drop like a rock on Nate, but it has been going down since about 2009. It's like, we just have been slowly deteriorating and we don't give parents any choices. I mean, it's a hard sell to think that you'll raise your kids there because it's, uh, it's, there's not a lot that they're offering up for parents um, but I, you know, I was just curious. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I mean, test scores, you know, there's a whole other, we could talk for two hours about test scores. Sure. But the, I, think, I think it, 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 it doesn't seem to be, I mean, we have, we're the same way. I mean, our NAPES have been dropping for, we've had like four governors now where the yeah. NAPES have been downsliding. It's not just any one thing. Part a lot. We also are a population losing state. So we are telling you. We're losing a lot of kids from schools in general. So I think, I mean, a lot of this, there's a lot of other macro factors going on here. Um, I do think that having, usually having the school, the school of choice system allows parents to make some sort of decisions outside of maybe the typical kind of um, buy or rent your home near your school. Like Mm -hmm. that, that. Whatever those decisions are, whether they're, I want my kid in a certain environment, whether I'm demographic shopping, whether I'm, you know, I mean, it's hard to know exactly what's determining it. And some, we we know that some of it doesn't make any sense. Like some of the the biggest receiving districts near Detroit are actually doing uh, more poorly on things like grad rates and test scores than the Detroit public school system. And yet they're drawing um, like 20% of kids leave the city of Detroit every day to go to a suburban school. We're not really sure why. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that those schools do bus kids in from Detroit. Like it's hard to know exactly what what's going on. I think some of it is um, some of it, frankly, not a lot of it, but some of it is marketing. Like sure. parent, these districts work Perception. really hard, and they tell parents, "Hey, you know, come over here." Um, and parents do bring do your that. money. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I just really appreciate this uh, research, uh, Josh. I really do. I think it's smart. I think it's nuanced. I think it uh, gives a much more realistic perspective than what you read about in the news a lot about school choice in general as a divisive issue. And um, and I would just encourage people to reach out and, and <laughs> to reach for it. No, I was going to say to reach out for it, but it is through the, the REACH program, uh, the REACH Center. And um, I look forward to seeing more of what you guys are going to be doing in the future.